Nine weeks, we've just come out of the Alpha series. Did you enjoy that? It's fantastic, wasn't it? And uh, honestly, if you weren't a part of that or couldn't be a part of that, would like to be a part of that, August 1 and 2, we have day and night courses uh, for Alpha, so uh, feel free to be a part of that. But let's get into this. This is our brand new series. Today is part one. I've called this Life, Money, Hope. I think we've got the slide there. And this is our annual reminder especially for those who of us who are followers of Jesus. I want to be very clear about that because I realize this idea of finances and money can be a little bit sensitive to what the world thinks. And We're going to have a look at what the Bible thinks and what the Bible says because Jesus, in fact, himself spoke on this particular subject many times. In fact, he spoke on this particular subject more than anything else, probably except for the kingdom of God. He spoke on this subject of finances more than any other subject. And in the month of August, for those who are regular here at Door of Hope, you'll know that this is our annual Hope Partners and Plan Giving season. What is that? I'll explain to you a little bit later on during the service via a clip in regards to that. And also at the end of August, we're going to bring you our annual celebration clip. And can I just say to you, there is a lot to give thanks for and to celebrate uh, through this last financial year in the life of our church. Let's get into this. Life... Money, hope. Three words. Think about these three words just for a moment. Life. We have been given life by the life giver. This is what you and I have been blessed with, this one and only life. It's not a rehearsal. This is the real deal. It is called life. Money. Money is what you and I deal with during this course of life. How we handle it. How we steward it, how we manage this thing called money, life, money, hope. This season, we're going to talk about what we put our hope in. Do we put our hope in money or do we put our hope in God? That's life, money, hope. Just a little bit of a background, if I could, in this particular passage we're going to unfold this morning. By the way, if you do have your Bibles or if you do have your your smartphones and if you do have notepads, feel free to take them out and write some notes in. Because I want to give us a little bit of a background. This next season in the life of our church, we're going to take a detailed look in the the second book of Timothy come September, October. So hang in there long enough. We're going to look at 2 Timothy right through, word for word pretty much, all right? Exegetical kind of uh, process there over two months. That's September, October. But this next couple of weeks, we're going to look in 1 Timothy. So let's find out the who, the what, the where, the when, the how, the why of 1 Timothy. Who wrote the book? Paul, the Apostle Paul, the great leader of the early church, the Apostle Paul wrote this book to Timothy. Where was Paul when he wrote this book? It's good to find out the foundation before we move on in this. Where was Paul? Well, according to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, he was in Macedonia. Where was Timothy when he wrote this book? Well, according to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, Timothy was in Ephesus. And so here he is, he's writing this book, and this book details kind of the general teaching and specific instructions for the congregation. Timothy was a young church leader. He was an evangelist. What was Paul? He was the apostle. The evangelist to the apostle. They did many things together. It was most likely that this particular book of 1 Timothy was written between AD 62 and AD 66, somewhere around about that particular time. Now, likely Paul here, uh, Timothy, uh, Paul and Timothy had traveled extensively uh, with Paul. 
So why would he write this letter? I kind of alluded to it there just a moment ago. Because the church in Ephesus, let's think about what's going on in, the, in, in, in this time in Ephesus. They were experiencing um, corrupt teachings. It was a young church. They were getting used to meeting together and figuring this out. And the culture was kind of um, having influence on this young church. And Paul urges Timothy in 1 Timothy to put a stop to this and to encourage the formation of Christ-likeness in this community. That's a little bit, of, little bit of the background. Feel free to do some more homework. Let's get into it. Let's go to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 7 to, 17 to 18, where it says this. Take notice of the words here, just if you could for a moment. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. Got it? Paul, Timothy, young church, command. There's a few words in that. I don't know about what stands out to you, if you've got your Bibles there or um, smartphones or the Scripture's still there, part of the Scripture's still there. There's a couple of words that kind of stood out to me. This is what I generally do when I'm doing my daily hope 20 minutes in the chair. What are those words that kind of stand out to me? In this particular passage, there are two words that really stand out to me that I want to draw out this morning, if that's okay. You're there this morning, if that's okay. Let's do it, let's do it. The first word I want to kind of draw out this morning is command. Paul's writing to Timothy, he says, command. You know, there's a difference between the word command and demand. I wonder what the difference is. Command. You see, command, command, the word command is a, comes from a place of influence. The word command comes from a place of authority. He's a church leader, and, and the apostle Paul says to Timothy, command, command those who are rich in this world. There's that power to this word command. And by the way, the tone of this letter is that of a mentor to a mentoree, that father to a son kind of relationship, that pastor to the church family, the shepherd to the flock. So we've got command. It's not demand. What's the word demand mean? That's that strong, that firm request that doesn't necessarily come from a place of authority. I don't know about you, but I tend to not like when I'm demanded to do something. But it comes from that place of command. So he says, command, command those who are rich in this present world. And where the word demand kind of comes in, the sense of struggle that comes alongside of that, isn't there? But this is a command. This is a command. Command those. Command those. This comes from a place of authority and a place of influence. I have a question to start uh, with this morning. It's this. If you became really rich, I want to focus on that word next. If you became really rich, millions of dollars came your way for however it came your way, would you be a generous rich person or would you be a selfish rich person? I'm at a guess most of us I probably would say, like I said a few years ago, we would say that I'd be a generous rich person. Know what I mean by that? A few years ago, I remember Karen and I having this conversation many years ago, and I said, "Oh man, you know, I can't remember the context of the conversation. I just w- wouldn't it be amazing if we somehow won multi millions of dollars of what we could do in the church and the community? And I'd do this, I'd do this, I'd do this." And Karen looked at me, and I've never forgotten this. All these years ago, and she said to me, 
But would you? But would you? Now, none of us really know until we're put in that particular place. But this is important because there's a command here. Command those who are rich in this present world. These words are important. See, in Paul's letter to Timothy, he tells Timothy, when he talks to rich people, he needs to tell them certain things because rich people seem to have unique challenges. And there are side effects. I'm just going to mention a couple of side effects to being rich. The first side effect is this. Here's why I think Paul addressed this issue with Timothy. The first thing is that rich people live in denial. Rich people live in denial. Why is it that tall people admit that they're tall? Why is it that short people admit that they're generally short? Why is it the musicians admit that they're musical? Athletes admit, admit that they're athletic? Introverts don't mind telling you they're introverted. Extroverts can't wait to tell you they're an extrovert. But when it comes to rich people, they don't want to admit that they are rich. Why? Because rich people live in denial. Okay, let's define the word rich before we go any further. Command those who are rich in this world. Let's define the word rich. Um, there was a group of people who were surveyed a little while ago, and they were asked the question, what, you, what would you consider to be rich? The average answer is if, if you made $150,000 per year, you would be rich. But if you ask that group of people who make $150,000, are you rich? You know what their answer would be? No, exactly. Then they surveyed people who made thirty dollars to $35,000 per year and asked, what would you consider to be rich? And their answer is, well, if you made $75,000 per year, you would be rich. But if you ask somebody who made $75,000, are you rich? Their answer would be, no, exactly. You get where I'm going. But why is that? And here is why, because rich people live in denial. There's always somebody else who is richer, and what we do, we compare. We look up and we compare, but we can also compare to other parts of the world in which you and I live. You know, you and I live in the top 2% of wealth in the entire world. <laughs> How about that? And you know what? I knew that would be a reaction as well. The reason we are not standing on these seats and celebrating that particular point is this, because we do not feel rich. And rich people live in denial. That's the first side effect. The second side effect is this, that being rich uh, is this, that rich people are plagued by discontentment. Rich people are plagued by discontentment. You know, the more that you get in life, I wonder what your response to this would be, is that does your appetite for stuff grow or shrink? We're a consumer society, aren't we? Of course, it grows. And the more a person has, the more a person wants. You ever noticed rich people sometimes do strange things? Uh, I've just got a couple of strange things that rich people do. In fact, the first strange thing is they do is that they drive their car that works perfectly fine into the property, onto the property of a new car dealership. They then pay the dealer thousands of dollars and drive away the new car that they just got that basically does everything that the old car did. Who would do that? I think we did that just over 12 months ago, didn't we? Rich people do that. 
Because the belief is that the old car equals unhappiness. The new car equals happy. The old kitchen equals unhappiness. The new kitchen, etc., etc. Finish this sentence for me. Strange things that rich people do. Rich people will sometimes stand in front of the cupboard full of clothes and say, I don't have anything to... I don't have anything to wear. Strange things what rich people do, hey? <laughs> you see, your appetite for stuff gets bigger, not less. And we live in this place of discontentment. And as followers of Jesus, Paul is saying to Timothy, to the church today, that we should have that totally different mindset, that we lead in a way of generosity, of giving, and of good deeds. Which brings me to a few different mindsets that I'm going to focus on this morning. Because there are different mindsets that we can have when it comes to life, money, and hope. In fact, your mindset will actually tell you where your hope is. As Paul wrote to this um, young leader, is it in wealth or is it in God? You see, never, many people never experience life, money, and hope because too many of us have what we might call a bag mindset. I've got this bag here. I just hope this illustration works just for a moment. hope the camera can kind of pick this up. And we kind of live in this way where... Generally, what... Oh, good, sorry, undo this. <laughs> Hang in there. Here we go, try this. Where what kind of comes in each and every day to our lives kind of, kind of goes straight out. Don't worry about that. Don't worry about that. Kind of goes straight. Anyone kind of feel like that sometimes? You know, it kind of comes in and it's kind of going straight out, isn't it? And we kind of live with this... I'll put that up there so you can see that. Kind of that bag kind of mindset just but let me just talk about that just for a moment because it's kind of that cycle of scarcity well, what do you mean a bag of scarcity well i'm sure we're all reading during the week from the book of haggai yep haggai chapter 1 verse 6 says this you have sown much and bring in little you eat but do not have enough you drink but you are not filled with drink. You're, you clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages, earns wages to put into what? A bag with holes. A bag with holes. You see, a bag mindset, what I'm referring to here, a bag mindset is when you never seem to have enough. As, as quickly as it goes in, it comes out. Let's have a look at this scarcity cycle just for a moment, because it goes like this. That God supplies. And the first thing that we do is what? We consume and we spend. At the end of the month, we generally have nothing left. And so God supplies, we consume, but then we lack. And as we lack, the dominant emotion that we feel is that we fear. And then we consume even more. And that cycle of scarcity just keeps going on and on and on. But as followers of Jesus, we should have a totally different mindset, the Apostle Paul says. Not that cycle of scarcity, but a cycle of supply. And Paul writes to the church in Corinth about this. And he says this, and it's entitled uh, Generosity Encouraged. He says this, Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. 
And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. It's a great passage of Scripture, that isn't it? That's 2 Corinthians chapter 9. You see, when we sow, when we sow, God supplies, and it creates this new circle, no longer a scarcity circle, but we've got a new circle, a cycle, and that's a supply cycle. What does this look like? Let's have a look at it. Because as Jesus followers, Paul would point out this, that the first thing we do is that we give, not consume. That, in fact, we return the tithe. We don't give the tithe. You can't give that in which didn't belong to you in the first place. We return the tithe. What's a tithe? A tithe is a 10% of all that we earn. We return that back to him as an act of love, as an act of worship. You know, we're singing this morning. Our finances also is that act of love, that act of worship. Because when we sow in good soil, we get a good return. When God multiplies, what happens? Our faith grows and we develop that heart of generosity and that circle goes. And it's only in God's economy that this makes sense. Let's put the two cycles together just if we could just for a moment because it looks a bit like this, that God supplies. And I wonder which cycle you are in in this moment of time. It's worth thinking about. But I'd like to focus on the tithe just for a moment. What does the tithe do? Tithing breaks the cycle of scarcity and creates a new cycle of supply. We've just talked about that. There are three thoughts that I have just quickly this morning on the power of our tithe. Firstly, it's this, that the tithe teaches us to put God first. To put God first. You see, Scripture teaches followers of Jesus to return the tithe that belongs to God. The first 10% of everything that we earn belongs to God. Deuteronomy chapter 14 verse 23 says that the purpose of tithing is to teach you always to put God first in your lives. I wonder if you're doing that. Maybe you could work your way towards that as as a follower of Jesus to put God first. Well, for me, to tithe would mean rearranging my whole life around God. Yes. For me to tithe, I'd have to make massive changes in my life. Yes. For me to tithe would would take absolutely crazy faith. Yes, it would. Why? Because it takes faith to give first. It doesn't take faith to give last. Tithing teaches us, first of all, to put God first. And allow his cycle of blessing in your life to play itself out. Second thing that a tithe does is this, that a tithe builds our faith. A tithe builds our faith. Malachi chapter 3 verse 10 to 11 says, Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. In brackets there, the church. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, the church, that there may be food in my house. He says, this is the only time he says this in whole of scripture, by the way. 
He says, test me in this. Test him in this, says the Lord God Almighty. And see, he says, if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it, I will prevent pests from devouring your crops and the vines in your fields will, will not drop their fruits before it, it's, before it is ripe, says the Lord Almighty. You see, the world says what? What's the scarcity cycle? To consume, to lack, And to fear, that's the cycle that the world says. But God builds our faith, creating that harvest of generosity. In other words, God is saying, give me your first and give me your best. Don't give me a blemished lamb, whatever you do. And I will make sure I will bless the rest. But you first of all have to trust me with the tithe. Because this is what happens with generosity. You start with the tithe. And then you see God's provision and God builds faith in our lives. And suddenly we're rearranging our whole life, recognizing that what God has given us each is not actually all about and for me or you. But it's about this world, this global village in which you and I live to make a difference in this world. Because it is more blessed, we are told in the book of Acts. It is more blessed to give than it is to receive. But we have to receive sometimes, don't we? Because how are we going to bless others if we don't receive? But that's a story for another time. This is a cycle of scarcity that's gone. And the cycle of supply is now in. We tithe. God multiplies. God oversees our lives. And he builds our faith. And that's where we build generosity into our world. Third thing the tithe does is that the tithe provides for the work of God's church. Just a quick show of hands. How many of you would say that your life is different spiritually because of God's work in this church? I put my hand up first. Fantastic. That's what happens. That's exactly what happens. When you and I return the tithe into God's church, lives are transformed and the world is impacted for good and for God. That's the first mindset. That's the bag mindset we've been talking about, the the bag mindset. Let's go to the second mindset. The second mindset is this. And this is my picnic basket. And uh, this is a basket mindset. This is a basket mindset. This is a whole different to a bag mindset. This is a person who believes that God can be trusted, that God is an abundant God, that we trust him and we trust his promises and that he gives freely and so generously. Once again, in the book of Deuteronomy 28, we pick up what it says there in regards to this. It says, The fruit of your womb will be blessed, And the crops of your land and the young of your livestock, the calves of your herds and the lambs of your flocks, your basket and your kneading trough will be blessed. You will be blessed when you come in and blessed when you go out. Your basket and your kneading trough will be blessed. What is going on there? Why is this basket mentioned? Well, in fact, Jesus mentions the basket in Luke chapter 638. Jesus taught about the basket in the New Testament, the Old Testament to the New Testament, where he says, give and it will be given to you. I don't know if you remember this old song. Do you remember? Is Royce in the house? Remember Ron Canoli singing? Give and it will come back to you. Good. I've lost it. Good. Run in. Oh, somebody, you remember that, right? You remember that? Yeah. A good song. That was Ron, Ron the Bon Canoli. All right. Back to teaching. Back to teaching. Give, he says, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, 
It will be measured to you. What's the deal with this? Give and it will come. The basket mindset. What's this all about? Well, in Jesus' day, people knew exactly what Jesus was talking about. What was he talking about? He was talking about the basket, not the bag mindset. People understood that when it was time for the wheat harvest, landowners would hire the day laborers and send them out into the fields with a basket, probably anything unlike that basket today. <laughs> but they would have to carry these particular baskets that were full of wheat way across the field in order to dump them, and they were quite heavy. They were very heavy, in fact, but the laborers weren't dumb, by the way. So they would half-fill these baskets, which would certainly make these baskets a lot lighter and a lot more achievable to get through their days. But at the end of the day, the landowner would come and say that the last basket of the day is yours. So I asked the question this morning, how do you think they're going to fill their last basket of the day? Luke 6.38, right? The same way that you and I serve ourselves at a food buffet. The same way you and I used to serve ourselves. Who remembers Sizzler? Isn't that a great place? In fact, I think it's still up in Queensland, isn't it, Michael and Noel? Do you know? It's not. They've taken it away. They've taken okay. W, it's over in WA. I see that hand. Any other advances? Come on. I see that. Any, <laughs> we want Sizzler back. Remember the, remember the toast? The, anyway, I've, I've gone off track. I've gone off track. Come back. Focus. focus. Luke 638, the basket Sizzler. That's right, Sizzler. The way that you and I serve ourselves at a food, but that's how they would serve their baskets. They'd, they'd put a good measure in, they'd press down, they'd shake them together, and they'd run it over. That's what the field workers would do. They would take the basket, they would take a good measure, they would press it down until it was running over, and that's the one that they would carry home to their families that particular day. You know what Jesus is saying here as he says in Luke chapter 6, verse 38? He's saying that that's the way that God treats you and I. Give, and it will be given to you. But it's going to take trust. It will be of good measure. It will be pressed down. It will be shaken together. It will be running over. Let's have a look at these two mindsets just for a moment. Do you remember the bag mindset? Do you remember the basket mindset? Let's just take a look at these, the difference between the bag mindset and the basket mindset. Is that the bag mindset people just cannot get over the edge to trust in the one who first provided for them. That's the bag mindset. They want to trust themselves. They want to trust their money instead of his promises. The basket mindset people know that God has never broken a promise and he can be trusted. It's hard for us, isn't it? It's hard for us. Why is it so hard for us to trust? Because we didn't come out of our mother's wombs as natural-born givers. We came out as natural-born takers. And it's one of the hardest things we have to teach our children to do, isn't it? To share. I'm still teaching my children to share. I'm still learning to share. But we don't have to teach our children to take because it comes natural. We are naturally born takers and basket people know that God can be trusted because they've experienced Proverbs 3 verses 9 to 10 where it says, honour the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits, the 10%, the tithe of all your crops, then your barns will be filled to overflowing. When you have the basket mindset, when we honour God first, he fills 
our basket. He fills our lives to overflowing, not just, just for me, but for the world in which we live, the fra- this fragile and uncertain world we live. Can I finish by just saying just a couple of quick things, and it's this. Can I finish by saying this? That I'm grateful that we have so many basket mindset people in this church. It's because of your generosity that we have a place to come together and worship. I've written a few things down to remind you just how generous you are. It's because of your generosity that we're able to assist close to 100 orphans in India with education and quality food while they hear the message of Jesus. It's because, Door of Hope, of your generosity, we now welcome many guests to our comfortable and warm fireside lounge. It's because of your generosity, our expanding children's ministry now have more rooms to gather in to share time to share the good news of Jesus. Door of Hope, it's because of your generosity we're able to provide a safe and nurturing camp for children in difficult circumstances. It's because of your generosity we can enjoy being kept warm with new heating. It's because of your generosity families in tough financial situations are supported. And we acknowledge that as a door of hope. It's because of your generosity prisoners, you believe this, Prisoners are able to speak via Skype with their loved ones. Door of Hope, it's because of your generosity. Our youth and young adults can enjoy a safe place offering fun, acceptance and relationship with others whilst learning about Jesus. It's because of your generosity. People who aren't able to make it to church can join with us by watching online. Welcome, by the way. It's because of your generosity, our campus, our buildings and our gardens are providing a welcoming and hospitable haven for our city. It's because of your generosity, families with challenging children are gaining assistance and being equipped for the journey ahead. It's because of your generosity, some local young people who are struggling with school are being included, trained and mentored in the mechanical area via Madwell's youth program. Together we sponsor over 300 children around the world. Door of Hope, it's because of your generosity, Launceston and other parts of the world are so blessed because so many of you have a basket mindset. You know, over 2,000 years ago, Paul wrote to Timothy. What did he say? Command. Command those who are rich in this world. Command in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth which is so uncertain but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. That's life, money, hope. I'm asking this morning, where is your hope? Is it in wealth? With a bag mindset? Or is it in the basket? In God, a basket mindset. Because the world needs more basket mindset people let me pray and maybe this morning if you still have those doubts if you find it hard to trust as we pray here this morning as we come around that communion time I think it's a perfect opportunity to remember that if you are struggling with trust and with faith that God is 
our provider. There's a name for him in Scripture is Jehovah Jireh, our provider, that he is a giver. If we struggle in acknowledging that he is a provider, that he is a giver, all we need to do is to look at the cross. As we focus on the cross, as we come in around this communion table this morning, that God says that I'm going to give you something before you give anything at all to me. In fact, I'm going to give you my one and only son. Whether or not you give to me, I'm going to give before you give to me. I will be your life provider. Will you trust in me? Because of the cross. And the cross reveals so many things. It reveals God's love. The cross reveals that he paid that price for your and my sins. The, the cross reveals that God so loved, so loved you and I so much that he gave first. While it was brutal, while it was graphic and it was, it represents love. It represents grace. It represents forgiveness and it represents hope. It both gives everything, but it requires everything. And in return, God asks us each and every day to carry our cross, to become the example to others to see and to be in awe of our great God. Because it's in giving away our lives that we will actually find our lives. And his promise in and through that as we do that is that he will never leave us nor forsake us, but will be with us. Father, this morning we take the bread as a symbol of your body broken on the cross. We take the cup, a symbol of your blood poured out for the sins of this world. We thank you that it was all that was accomplished on the cross, the life, the death, and the resurrection and hope. May we live to give. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I'd like to invite the team to come and serve us as we remain where we are and we think about the sacrifice, we think about the love, we think about the cross this morning. Thank you, team.